Hello, I'm Brent Siddle, and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. We're joined once again in this podcast by Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And we're here to finish the study of the book of Daniel with Daniel chapter 12. Alistair, hi, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Thank you for coming. Now, how does chapter 12 round off and complete the book of Daniel? So Daniel chapter 11 was a pretty breathtaking walk through a long period of history. So it took us from the rise of the Empire of the Greeks through six Syrian wars, the persecutions of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the Maccabean Revolt, and through to the rise of the Herodian dynasty. Now, the point of his, this sort of prophecy is not merely to give us a blow-by-blow account and to amaze us with the Lord's prediction of the future. It's to lead up to the actual point, the way in which the Lord is going to fulfill his promises. And we should bear in mind the sorts of concerns that precipitated these prophecies in the first place. Daniel is looking forward to the great event by which the the Lord's purpose will be established, by which atonement will be provided. And all of these things are what are in view within this final chapter of the book. This is an eschatological horizon, not merely talking about an odd series of events that are going to happen in the future, but how the Lord's purpose is going to be fulfilled in a far more dramatic and um, complete way. And the figure of Michael is prominent within this chapter, I think, in part because Michael is the one in whom the whole of the Lord's purpose is going to reach, finally, its climax. Well, that begs the question, then, who is Michael? (laughs) Well, I think Michael is best understood as the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord best understood as the pre-incarnate Christ. And so when we get to Revelation chapter 12, we see the figure of Michael there, um, the war in heaven, but the war in heaven arises after the son of the woman is caught up into heaven. And I think that is a reference to Christ. Michael is the leader of the forces against um, the dragon and his angels. And so Michael himself will come upon the scene as prophesied within this chapter. We've seen a number of images of the great end of the kingdoms. And we've been going through the kingdoms within these prophecies from um, chapter 7 to chapter 11. And now we've seen the ways in which these four different stages of kingdoms will arise, the four stages of the kingdom mentioned in chapter 2, and then also the four beasts in chapter 7. The question is, where is the Son of Man? And where also is the stone cut without hands that's going to break down this great image? And Michael is the one in whom this really takes place. What's the resurrection spoken of there in verse 2? Yes, many have seen this as a first reference to the resurrection, as we tend to understand it theologically, and there certainly seems to be some relation there. But there certainly references to the resurrection in the Old Testament are fairly rare. The resurrection here, it seems to me, is a bit more complicated. It's many people who are resurrected, not necessarily all, And if this is the final resurrection, then it seems to be happening far too early in history. The horizon that we're looking at here is not the final end. It seems to be something earlier than that. Third, it is a resurrection that includes many of the wicked, which makes it difficult for us to identify it merely as a spiritual resurrection. Elsewhere in scripture, we see a number of forms in which resurrection is referred to. For instance, there's a sort of resurrection in the advent of new spiritual life for a people or nation. 
we see our Lord talking about the way that many and many will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will live in John chapter five, and then going on to talk about the graves, those in the graves who will hear the voice of the Son of Man. So there's a sort of resurrection to spiritual life, and then there's a resurrection that is a more physical resurrection. In Revelation chapter 20, verses five to six, we read of the first resurrection. And so in the first century following Jesus' resurrection, old covenant saints who had rested in Sheol, or Abraham's bosom, were raised up with Christ to Christ to sit with him in the glory of heaven. So we can think about the way in which there are the souls of the slain beneath the altar who are brought up later on in the book of Revelation. So whereas they had formerly been in a sort of semi-exile of the grave, now they enjoyed God's very presence. They're brought into his to enjoy the presence in the throne room. So what death means for the people of God radically changes after the ascension of Christ. We tend to think about the period after death as the same Old Testament, New Testament. I don't think that's the case. When you read accounts of what happens after death in the Old Testament, they seem to be fairly pessimistic. It's a step away from the reality of fellowship with God, a step away from the life and communion that um, is known in the realm of the living. It's a realm that is a more shadowy realm. And so you are brought into your, um, gathered into your, to your ancestors, to your people, but there's a sense that you're existing in the wings. The events are taking place on the stage and you are no longer participating in that to the same degree. In the New Testament, we read things like Paul's description in Philippians chapter one, that it's better for him to go and be with Christ, that that is a far more positive state. And it seems to me that what we're seeing is a shift in the situation of the people of God after their death, whereas previously they would have been in Sheol, not in, not in torment, but in a situation, a sort of antechamber waiting for um, to be raised up. In the events after the resurrection of Christ and his ascension, they are brought up to seat sit with him in the heavenly places. So there's a change in the situation of the people of God. And I think that is most likely what is behind the language of resurrection here. We also have it in Ezekiel chapter 37, the um, reference to the valley of the dry bones. And that's another sort of national spiritual resurrection of Israel. And I think that's something of what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 5 about the those who hear the voice of the Son of God and live. So there are a number of different options out there. I think maybe it's an overlap between a few of these, but my inclination is to connect this more with the period of the um, first resurrection referred to in Revelation. Mm. What's the time of distress mentioned in verse 1? We have reference to a time of distress elsewhere in the New Testament, and there it's referred to as the time, I think, leading up to the destruction of the temple. It's a time of extreme tribulation as described in Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus talks about this in his Olivet Discourse, where he says that there will be a time of tribulation greater than has ever been before. And if it were not cut short, no human being would be saved. So it seems that that would be the most natural candidate for what this time of tribulation or distress is referring to. This is a time, remember, when the whole age of the old creation and the old covenant is being wrapped up. All the blood from Abel to Zechariah is coming upon that first century generation, as Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 23. 
Who are the sleepers in the soil's dust who will awaken then in those verses? I would think of that as the first, some reference to the first resurrection. And we can see a sort of sign of this um, in the way that many of the righteous were raised from their graves after Jesus' resurrection and appeared to people in the city. So there's a sort of resurrection taking place on some level there that it's not necessarily seen on, as a public physical event, but it's taking place in connection with Christ's resurrection. Who are the skilled who will shine like the brightness of the firmament? What's that a reference to? It's common language that I think we have in scripture of Christians, for instance, shining as lights in the world. Um, those who are wise and righteous reign with Christ and they are brought up to the heavens. They share in his victory and can think about the same sort of imagery used in Revelation. Christ refers to the church in connection with the stars that he holds in his hand and so shining like the stars connected with Christ the great high priest who walks in the midst of the candlesticks who holds the seven stars it seems that this would be a way of understanding what's taking place there. What is the book that Daniel is commanded to seal because he's commanded to seal a book in verse four isn't he? Yes I would connect this with his prophecies so first of all we should bear in mind that the fact that he's told to seal this book is in contrast to the way that Revelation speaks about not sealing the book. Revelation chapter 22, verse 10, I think it is, John is told not to seal the book because the events are on the near horizon. However, as we've discussed with Daniel, these events are some maybe about 550 years in the future from his time, even more. And so his expectation is that he's not going to live to see any of these things take place. So his book should be sealed, he should wait, and when the time comes, these things will come to pass. But he will be raised at that point and have his place. But until that point, the book should be sealed. It's something that will not be understood until the time has come. So the opening of the book in Revelation chapters 5 and 6 allude partly to Daniel's prophecy? Yeah, I think the whole book of Revelation needs to be read against the backdrop of the prophecy of Daniel, even events that aren't directly referring to the events being um, taking place in the book of Revelation are described in terms of prophecies of Daniel. So, for instance, the abomination of desolation is not mentioned in reference to AD 70 in the book of Daniel, but it is something that is anticipated or i think it is but it's also something that's anticipated in antiochus so we have different horizons that look forward to this and the way that christ speaks about those events draws upon some of those paradigms that are taken from daniel so we have reference to the son of man the abomination of desolation can think about the references to resurrection all of these details are drawing upon the prophecy of daniel what does the terminal time refer to? So there is a sort of final, final end when we think about the wrapping up of the entire creation and the end of all things. But this is the end of an age that is being referred to. It's the whole age that leads from the beginning in Genesis to in the original creation to the end of the old covenant. And this we don't tend to take this seriously enough, but this is 
a crucial point of time when the whole temple system is dissolved and that whole old covenant is replaced and Christ comes, the whole order has transformed. And there is primarily a revolution in heaven. Satan and his angels are cast down. Christ is raised up as the son of man. So all these events have taken place in heaven. The reality is not yet fully seen on earth, but the key events have already taken place. And so the time of the end, I think, is referring particularly to the years from Christ's ministry to AD 70, which is the period of the sort of overlap leading to the actual end of the Old Covenant. And so during this period, you can imagine, or the period leading up to this, there would be increasing clarity as to the, what that prophetic horizon involved. So people would be reading the prophecies of Daniel, and we know that they were, and speculating upon when these things are going to take place. And they see certain of the milestones passing. They meditate upon what could be in view, and things are taking sharper and sharper um, form as they're going through the history. And by the time that we see the book of Revelation, it's taking all these themes from Revelation, from Daniel, and saying, these things are actually taking place now. This is the time of the end. This is when the whole old creation is going to be wrapped up and a new order is going to be established. Yes, hence a reference to the period when knowledge increases or when knowledge has increased there, which some people like to refer to our time, but I, I can't see the need to push the, the, the book out that far. I mean, clearly. And the knowledge, what's the knowledge that's increasing? Mm, it's the yes. knowledge about the meaning of the prophecy. Yes, yes. As the time is going on and you're seeing all these events, the six Syrian wars, the um, rise of the Hasmoneans and the um, Maccabean revolt and the rise of Herod the Great and the Herods, and then the Romans, you're seeing all of these things taking place and your knowledge of the prophecy is considerably increased from what Daniel would have enjoyed. Okay, who are the three figures that Daniel sees in his vision here in chapter 12? Yes, it's an interesting question. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, we can see a number of attendants within the um, prophecy so far. We've had Gabriel appearing on a number of occasions. Um, the two others who are standing, I'm not sure. Um, and then the one who speaks to the man clothed in linen. Again, maybe one of these figures is Gabriel. I'm not sure. Uh, is the man clothed in linen Jesus? Well, we've um, already had this description in um, the beginning of chapter 10, lifting up his eyes and looking and behold, the man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. It's the same description that we have pretty much of Christ at the beginning of Revelation chapter one. So it seems to me that this is most likely Michael, Christ, and it's the angel of the Lord. This is the, the figure clothed in linen. And one of the figures has his hands held up. Is, that, is there a connection back with Moses in Exodus 17, where Moses holds up his hands during the battle with Amalek? Perhaps. I'm not sure. Again, it's one of those details I've not um, come to a decision on. But There's so much in this, isn't there? No, it so really what, is incredibly rich. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Try, trying to trace it all out. What, now, what does uh, the angel of the Lord, Michael, tell Daniel in these verses? So a lot of what we're dealing with is things that we've seen already. We've seen the time, times, and half a time. That's a 
a similar statement from what we've had earlier in reference to another event. It was mentioned in connection with the little horn back in chapter 7, verse 25. It's referred to in Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13. It's related to the period of the woman's um, sojourn in the wilderness. It's spoken of in terms of days, 1,260 days. It's the period of the blasphemous authority of the sea beast as well as 42 months. And the this is predicting the that period of tribulation at the time of the end. So that reference to time, times, and half time is made a bit more clearer towards the end of the prophecy. And so many of these things are things that Michael is declaring at the very end. And it's important to see that the figure of Michael is the one through whom all of these things will be fulfilled. And so Michael's appearing as a figure is not, it's not just the context, the content of the prophecy that is important. It's the one in whom the prophecy will be um, fulfilled that appears to Daniel. So Daniel sees the, the agent who's going to bring about the purpose of the Lord and also hears how the Lord's purpose will be brought about. And so Daniel is instructed about his part within the situation. The fact that he's going to wait until the time of the end. The words are shut up. They're not going to be revealed just yet. People will meditate upon it. Knowledge will increase. And all these things will happen. People will be running to and fro, as we've read earlier in the chapter. And as we thought in chapter 11, all these to and froings of the kings, that's the sort of thing that's going to happen in the interim. But then at the end, there's going to be this period of time when he's going to be raised up and it's going to be the conclusion of it all. So the period of time that we have in verses 11 and 12 seems to be significant as well. So we've got 1,290 days and then an extra period of time, which is extended 1,335 days. And so the first number seems to be connected with the, it's three times 430, which is the period of Israel in the wilderness. It's also referred to in Ezekiel chapter four. It's the period of time that Ezekiel has to lie on his side. So there's 390 days and then 40 days. And so this, it seems, is referring to three periods of persecution followed by another period that's cut short. And this begins with the cutting off of the regular offering, which is the events in the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. And then this is a sort of extended sort of Egyptian captivity period in parallel. And so this is the reign of Antiochus. It's the period of the Hasmonean dynasty, the period of the Herods. And then the half a time that follows is the great tribulation that precedes the destruction of Jerusalem. Another way that we could think about, uh, we could also think about the 45 years as the period following the departure from Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, and then that leads up to the conquest of the promised land. And so all of these things are referring to events on the very far distant horizon. But yet the distant hope gives confidence in the present, in the crisis that Daniel and others are experiencing. Jerusalem is still in ruins. The temple has not yet been rebuilt it seems that they're receiving a lot of discouraging news at that period of time. And all the hoped for reviving of the nation is not taking place quite according to plan. But the Lord's purpose has not been derailed. 
and the long-term purpose is going to take place. And those who are faithful to the vision would purify themselves. They will gain insight into the Lord's promised future as they meditated upon it. And as time passed by, knowledge would increase. And yet at the same time, wickedness would continue and grow at the same time. And so Daniel, at the very end, is addressed. He will soon die. But at the conclusion of the period of time that is spoken of here, he will participate in the first resurrection. He'll be raised up to God's presence, to his allotted place of rule, inheriting the kingdom with Michael, the son of man who's mentioned in chapter seven, and his kingdom established in heaven at that time would overtake, would end the reign of the beasts, the reign that he's been exploring from chapter seven to this chapter. And then it would grow like the stone in chapter two to fill the whole earth. And so the book of Daniel is very much about this struggle for sovereignty, and it comes to its climax and conclusion at this very end. Yes. Uh, how does Jerusalem become a spiritual Egypt in this period? I think we see that in uh, the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew very much presents Jerusalem as a sort of spiritual Egypt, doesn't he? Yes, uh, we can see it in num- a number of ways. So, for instance, we can see it in the way that people are afflicted everywhere with demonic possession. There is a sort of occupying force, not just of the Romans, but of demons. We could think about it also, and Jesus is always going to synagogues and casting out demons from people in the synagogues. You can think also about the way that the house of the temple is declared to be unclean. It needs to be cleansed. It's like a leprous house. We can also think about the way in which there is this pharaoh-like force in the heart of the land with Herod. He's also like Ahab. He kills John the Baptist in a very similar way, one of the Herods kills John the Baptist in a very similar way to the conflict between uh, Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. So Jezebel is Herodias and then Herod is like Ahab and the conflict with John the Baptist is like a conflict with Elijah. But in this case, Ahab is actually successful and he kills this new Elijah. So we've got that. We can also think back to the way that the killing of the of the infants and the massacre of the innocents is something similar to the killing of the baby boys at the beginning of the book of Exodus. We can think about the way that we have magicians or magi coming from the east to a court of a king who's engaging in these sorts of practices. The roles are reversed. It's no longer the magicians who are in the court of Pharaoh who are opposing Moses and Aaron. It's now Herod within the land opposing the king of the Jews and magicians from a foreign land coming to actually worship the king. And so the land has become like Egypt. You can see that again in the way that out of Egypt I have called my son. Which is the Egypt? Is it the Egypt that he's going into or is it the Egypt that he's leaving? And it seems it's playing upon the ambiguity. It's both. Yes, Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute, uh, thank you for this absolutely fascinating series of discussions on the book of Daniel. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. It's been a delight. Thank you. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. 
If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.